It's a special episode. It is? Yeah, it is. You always say it's a special episode. No, but this is a really special episode. Do you know why it's a special episode? No. What is it today? Well, in 45 minutes. Oh, it's my birthday. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Should we tell everybody how old you are? No. 25. Yeah, 25. Not really. But it's happy. It's Steve's happy birthday. So happy birthday. I love you. All right. You know what I got you for your birthday? No. Should we introduce ourselves first? Oh, my name is Kim. And I am Steve. And for your birthday, I let you do research for this week's show. Okay. So, yes, she allowed me to do the research. So we had the show ready. It is Wednesday night. Very late Wednesday night. Yeah, it's very late Wednesday night. It's like almost midnight. And um, we had the show ready to go. And then when we looked over the notes, it it really came down to it sounded like a very boring history class with dates this and dates that. And we said, we don't want to do that. We want to put this show out to where it's at least halfway entertaining. So we deliberately delayed this, and I rewrote all the notes and did all the research again. I mean, in our defense, I think that we could make dates in monotony pretty entertaining, I think, but... I didn't want to do that. So what we have tried to do, we've led up to the revolution. It took two episodes of pre-revolution to get us to where we are tonight. Mm -hmm. And tonight we're going to discuss the American Revolution. So Honestly, I think the the pre-revolution, I might get some some kickback on this, but I actually think the pre-revolution is more interesting than the revolution part. I, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I'm interested to see what you guys think. Okay. You agree with me. So, all right. So we're gonna try and give an overview of the American Revolution in an hour. So it took a long time in uh, in real in time. Yeah. 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 Uh, there's no way that we can cover it in the depth that it deserves. But and you should have studied this in school, so you should know some of this stuff already. Anyway, if you don't, uh, go read David McCullough, 1776. Go do your research and and what. And what? Educate yourselves. And, oh, and educate oh, yourselves. Gosh. Okay. All right. So we're going to go in a little more in depth on a few of the more notable stories, but we're going to start with a definition and a historical perspective about the American army that fought the war. So before we get into the revolution, there's a lot of terms that are gen- generally thrown around like the militia and the Minutemen. So although the terms militia and Minutemen are sometimes used interchangeably today, In the 18th century, there was a big difference between what a militiaman was and what a minuteman was. So militia were were men in arms formed to protect their towns from foreign invasions and just the bad things that can happen, the ravages of war. Minutemen were a small, hand-picked elite force. These guys were required to be highly mobile and able to assemble quickly and move out and go do their thing. Minutemen were selected from militia muster rolls by their commanding officers. So they kind of just picked like so can we the, basi- cream, the cream of the crop, the guys who were ready to go. So we can basically say that the Minutemen were the special ops of the militia? Uh, special forces? Yeah, 
maybe that might be a stretch. Maybe they, they were just guys that were highly trained. Best and of the best. The, the best of the best and ready to go. Okay. So typically they were 25 years of age or younger. They were chosen, okay, here's for their enthusiasm, their reliability, and their physical strength. All right, I'm going to interrupt you again. I'm sorry. I'm going to try and keep it to a minimum because I know how much we have to get through. But it just, I, it always ceases to amaze me. We always see the founding fathers painted as old men. But you got to remember, these guys are, they're young guys. They're not, um, I mean, they're not the old wrinkled. It was spread across the ages. Like, we're going to talk a little bit later when we talk about George Washington. He was 44 at, the, you know, at all of this time. We always see him in his old white hair and everything. He was not an old man. So these were young guys. And, and that, I think, is just really interesting. Yeah. So usually about one quarter of the militia served as Minutemen, performing the additional duties of such. The Minutemen were the first armed militia to arrive or away to battle. So these guys were, like, ready in a minute, sent them out the door, and then, you know, the militia will catch up here in a little bit. (laughs) As early as 1645, men were selected from the militia ranks to be dressed with matchlocks, which rifles or pikes, um, within a half hour of being worn. So they were, like, standing in the door, ready to go right now. A journal entry from Samuel Thompson who was a Massachusetts militia officer, states, but when our men were gone, they sent 11 more at a minute's warning with three days' provisions. By the time of the Revolution, Minutemen had been well-trained uh, force for six generations in the Massachusetts Bay wow, Colony. Wow, yeah, so I didn't realize it goes that, back that they for went back a long, that far. long time. Holy so cow. They would send them out with three days and expect them to be able to, you know, Hold, hold hold back the the bad guys for three days till the militia could catch up and and come form up behind them. Which the fact that um, they had been around uh, for six generations makes me wonder: Did they? Um, and, and I don't know if you know, but it. See, I wonder if it was like a father son thing. Like a lot of times now, you have. You I know, would equate it to like volunteer firefighters today. But like I, not I mean, not doing the same job, but it's just yeah. But like, I mean, like you, you served, did your duty. You, you know, your dad served in the navy, and you served in the army, and two of your kids served in the army. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of their kids served. You know what I mean? Like it gets I, passed you know, down I, 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 a legacy of sorts. Yeah, I, I think you're trying to relate it to current times. I think it was just expected and done in the day. Yeah, I guess I forget too that this is. Uh, I mean, they're it's a brand new nation. It's not even a nation yet. Yeah. So, yeah, you everybody on deck to defend. So the, the roles of the Minuteman in 1775, they were the product of many years. I think this kind of answering some of your questions here. The product of many years of institutional development. It was also the result of careful planning and collective effort. So that's basically what we were saying right there. Yeah. By the time the revolution... Uh, Massachusetts had been training, drilling, and improving their militia for well over 100 years. One thing the Minuteman lacked was a central leadership. Lacking that central command with each company of Minutemen loyal to their own town, one of the problems they had is they, they fought there in their town and they didn't go ahead and didn't, they didn't pursue the Redcoats. So that was a little bit of an issue with them. Although lacking, though, in central command, the Minutemen were still better organized and battle-tested 
than any other part of the uh, part-time the part-time military or the militia. They were a vital and necessary force playing a crucial role in not only the revolutionary war but in earlier conflicts that we talked about in the pre-revolution. Without these um these guys ready in a minute, uh history may not have been written in the same way. It may have been written in a very different way. Basically, Absolutely. the Minutemen were formed to protect local interest. Yeah, and I always wonder, I love revisionist history, like, or not revisionist history, that's not the right word, the alternative history, I guess. Like, um, what's that show that was on Man in the High Castle, um, where that one is where the Germans won World War II. I love ideas like that. So, like, if the Minutemen hadn't been there and we had lost the Revolutionary War, what would America look like today? I think that's really interesting stuff. Um, but the revolution was such a broad-scale conflict that the Minutemen were not effective in their individually locally formed companies, so they were absorbed into the militia to form the Continental Army. And so now we're going to pick kind of back up where we were. When we last left last week, Paul Revere had alerted the colonists that the British were coming. The British are coming. The British are coming. <laughs> to make ready. That was April 18th, 1775. Now, April 19th, is kind of a weird day in history. The Boston Marathon was first run on April 19th in 1897. Shirley Temple appeared in her first movie in April 19th, or yeah, on April 19th, 1934. In 1993, the siege on Waco came to an end. That was with David Koresh and, um, oh. The Branch Davidians. That's what I was looking for. Thank you. And then in retaliation two years later, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City was bombed. On April 19th in 1775, America really began its fight for its freedom in earnest. Okay, so some of the conspiracy theorists could really have, well, I mean, some of them are tied to this stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Now, remember that the original plan... Uh, to to kind of take on the colonists, had British General Gage splitting his troops between the cities of Lexington and Concord. Troops in Lexington were tasked with capturing Sam Adams and John Hancock, mm. while the Concord branch was supposed to confiscate the colonists' gunpowder. However, word got out, and by the time 240 troops got to Lexington Green, about 70 Minutemen were ready and waiting. And they had their three days provisions. Yeah, nobody knew it was going to happen. And then, I'm going to actually take a break for a minute and read a poem called Concord Hymn by Ralph Waldo Emerson. It was written in 1836. It says, By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. The foe long since in silence slept, alike the conqueror silence sleeps. And time the ruined bridge has swept down the dark stream which seaward creeps. On this green bank, by this soft stream, we set today a votive stone, that memory may their deed redeem, when, like our sires, our sons are gone. Spirit that made those heroes dare to die and leave their children free, Bid time and nature gently spare the shaft we raise to them and thee. Um, and that was a con- uh, um, commemorative poem written uh, to sort of... Um, commemorate. Yeah, commemorate and memorialize the events that happened on this day. So about that shot heard round the world that Emerson's talking about, 
nobody really knows who fired it. But credit is usually given to British Major John Pitcairn, who was the executive officer of the Lexington branch of the two-pronged attempt. Now, that'll be debatable. But let's backtrack a second. Because the colonist leader was a guy named Captain John Parker, who was a veteran of the French and Indian Wars, and he had tuberculosis. So one of the Minutemen at Lexington that day, um, or I'm sorry, of the Minutemen at Lexington that day, about a quarter were related to John Parker in some way. So this kind of motley crew had gathered at the Buckman Tavern, and about 4.15 in the morning, John Parker finally got word that the British were in fact coming, and they were almost there. But he didn't want to fight, really, because A, he had tuberculosis, B, he knew they were outnumbered, and C, frankly, he was just kind of tired of fighting. He, like I said, had been in the French and Indian War, he was ready to try some diplomacy, but he also was leading a group of Minutemen yeah. who were, like you said, young and ambitious and ready to go. Can you imagine being there that day? I mean, with the standoff, they were outnumbered. They, they knew they were outnumbered. Did they know that this shot fired from an unknown rifle would start the revolution uh, yeah. that day? I mean, we already had the Boston Massacre where shots were fired. Right. And, okay. And by this point, did they have enough and realize that this conflict was the beginning of the Revolutionary War? I don't know that they necessarily knew that it was the beginning of the Revolutionary War, but you got to know that something's up and something's in the air. Now, the numerically superior British, remember, we are talking 70-minute men and 240 British. So we're, like, t- vastly outnumbered. Um, they, the British killed seven Americans on Lexington Green, and then they marched off to Concord with the new regiments that had joined them. But American militias arriving at Concord stopped the British advance. And as the British retreated toward Boston new waves of colonial militia intercepted them and they shot from behind fences and trees and inflict managed to inflict over 125 casualties, including several officers, which really kind of surprised both sides. Frankly, I don't know that the Minutemen necessarily knew that they had it in them, which kind of to me answers that question a little bit of, did they know? I think, I think they, they were fed were, up by I this think time. They were ready. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, uh, I think that the British had just been so, um, you know, they had just taken and taken and taken and and we hadn't really done anything in response. And so they probably figured they can quell this little skirmish rebellion, which which really the battle at Lexington is really more of a skirmish than a than a battle. Um, It was a shot heard around the world, but it was the shot heard around the world. So since this is such an important part of American history, um, I'd like to read the report from Lieutenant Colonel Smith, uh, which was he was uh, head of the 10th Regiment of Foot, back to General Gage. It's a okay. firsthand account of what happened from the British standpoint. Okay, so I think I included this in because it is a documented firsthand account of what happened. Yeah. And so we had Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, give his poem. Right. But this is like an official documented, you know, went into yeah, the and, British files. So and I Emerson think, was almost a hundred years, you know, 75 years after the fact. This is, this happened from a guy that was there. Yeah. And so it, it went into the official records with the British army. So 
You want to read? Do you want to read this? You want to read the whole thing? You're, you're a much better reader than I am. <laughs> yeah, read the whole thing. All right, I'll do my best. In obedience to your excellency's commands, I marched on the evening of the 18th with the Corps of Grenadier and Light Infantry for Concord to execute your excellency's orders with respect to destroying all ammunition, artillery, tents, etc. collected there, which was effected, having knocked off the trunnions of three pieces of iron ordnance, some new gun carriages, a great number of carriage wheels burnt, and a considerable quality of quantity of flour, some gunpowder, and musket balls, with other small articles thrown into the river. So, do you want to translate as we go? No, go ahead. Okay. So, basically, uh, we marched on Concord, and we messed stuff up. Notwithstanding, we marched with the utmost expedition and secrecy. We found the country had intelligence or strong suspicion of our coming, and fired many signal guns, and rung the alarm bells repeatedly, and were informed, when at Concord, that some cannon had been taken out of the town that day, that others, with some stores, had been carried three days before. Which, to me, sounds like he's starting to make excuses. I think it proper to observe... That when I had got some miles on the march from Boston, I detached six light infantry companies to march with all expedition to seize the two bridges on different roads beyond Concord. On these companies' arrival at Lexington, I understand, from the report of Major Pitcairn, who was with them, and from many officers, that they found on a green close to the road a body of the country people drawn up in military order, with arms and accoutrements, and, as appeared after, loaded and that they had posted some men in a dwelling and meeting house. Our troops advanced towards them without any intention of injuring them, further than to inquire the reason of their being thus assembled, and if not satisfactory, to have secured their arms. But they in confusion went off, principally to the left, only one of them fired before he went off, and three or four more jumped over a wall and fired from behind it among the soldiers, on which the troops returned it and killed several of them. They likewise fired on the soldiers from the meeting and dwelling house. We had one man wounded, and Major Pitcairn's horse shot in two places. Rather earlier than this, on the road, a countryman from behind a wall had snapped his piece at Lieutenants Adair and Sutherland, but it flashed and did not go off. After this, we saw some in the woods, but marched on to Concord without anything further happening. While at Concord, we saw vast numbers assembling in many parts. At one of the bridges, they marched down with a very considerable body on the light infantry posted there. On their coming pretty near, one of our men fired on them, which they returned, and on which action ensued, and some very few were killed and wounded." In this affair, it appears that after the bridge was quitted, they scalped and otherwise ill-treated one or two of the men who were either killed or severely wounded, being seen by a party that marched soon after. At Concord, we found very few inhabitants on the town. Those we met with both Major Pitcairn and myself took all possible pains to convince that we meant them no injury and that if they opened their doors when required to search for military stores, not the slightest mischief would be done. We had opportunities of convincing them of our good intentions, but they were sulky. Sulky. And one of them even struck Major Pitcairn. On our leaving Concord to return to Boston, they began to fire on us from behind the walls, ditches, trees, etc., 
which as we marched increased to a very great degree and continued without the intermission of five minutes altogether for, I believe, upwards of 18 miles, so that I can't think, but it must have been a preconcerted scheme in them to attack the king's troops, the first favorable opportunity that offered... Otherwise, I think they could not in so short a time as from our marching out have raised such a numerous body and for so great a space of ground, notwithstanding the enemy's numbers, they did not make one gallant effort for doing so long an action, though our men were very much fatigued, but kept under cover. You did an outstanding job reading. Thanks. Hopefully yeah. you guys all got all of that. Yeah. So I, I think that was important to give it from the British standpoint. And what I think we can Sounds point like out... Sounds like a coward to me. And I think what we can point out here is that the British were used to fighting in the old school way where they, they mm-hmm. stand online and they shoot at each other. And they were not used to... You got to remember that the Americans had been in the French and Indian War, mm-hmm. and they took a lot of their tactics like from from that scalping people and yeah, from maybe from being yeah. scrappy, but uh, and not standing online and firing like that and mm-hmm. shooting from behind cover and doing a, a completely different type of warfare than what the British were actually used to. It really confused them, it sounds like. It, the British were really confused, like, what the heck is going on? Yeah. And it probably made them think that there were way more colonists involved than what there actually were. That's We would call that combat multipliers right now, and they, they took advantage of that. To uh, They had the smaller numbers, so they had to adapt yeah. to that. You do what you got to okay. do. Well, that was straight from the horse's mouth. So in May 1775, the Redcoats once again... We're storing Boston. The Second Continental Congress uh, was convening in Philadelphia. But this time, you remember last last week we talked about the First Continental Congress and they were talking about trade and and what you know, and stuff like that. But the questions this time were much, much different. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, how would the colonists meet the military threat of the British? It was agreed that a Continental Army would be created the Congress commissioned General George Washington of Virginia to be the supreme commander who chose to serve without pay. They talked about how would they pay for supplies. The Congress authorized the printing of money. Before fall, Congress had even appointed a standing committee to uh, to conduct relations with foreign governments should they ever the need ever rise to ask for them for help. So I guess that is the beginning of the State Department right yeah. there. It's like our government bureaucracy in its infancy. It's forming, yeah. No longer was Congress dealing with just grievances. They were now becoming a full-on political governing body. That's exciting stuff. Yeah, it was. I, um, I, it would have been exciting to live back then. I, Although we say it's exciting, but I... We're I in exciting times right now. We are. We definitely are. But I, I, I don't know. I wonder, I'm sure it was. Sometimes you watch on C-SPAN or something when you have something that is really fiery and they still will get up and yell and holler at each other. And I'm sure that it was very similar. Yeah, I remember watching back in the 90s when uh, Russian tanks were firing on the equivalent of the, the Russian White House. It's Yeah. I would love to have been there to see this. So in May of 1775, though, the majority of delegates were not seeking independence from Britain. Now, during this time, the, Marissa, ugh, the militia harassed the British all the way from Concord to Boston and then surrounded the city. 
So in an attempt to drive the colonials away from the city, British forces attacked the Americans at Breed's Hill on June 17th, resulting in heavy casualties for the British in the war's first major battle. George Washington arrived in July to assume command of the American forces, which was then organized as the Continental Army. Washington then forced 11,000 British soldiers to evacuate Boston the following March, when Henry Knox successfully led 12 artillery pieces from Fort Ticonderoga to Dorchester Heights overlooking the city below. And then by the early spring of 1776, the war had expanded to other regions. At Moore's Creek in North Carolina and Sullivan's Island at Charleston, American forces stopped British invasions. And after initial successes, especially the capture of Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York... It's beautiful up there. ...an American invasion of Canada stalled and ended in failure at the end of the year. So as 1775 turned into 1776, the British rapidly built up forces in New York and Canada to strike back. And now we have to talk about the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, so this is, you know, a very important document to to Americans, to our listeners from overseas. So this Declaration of Independence didn't just happen over a weekend. <laughs> and this I am going to cover. We're trying our best not to just throw out dates, but I, I think with this I just need to throw out like the timeline here. So on June 11th, 1776, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Ooh. Roger Sherman, and Robert R. Livingston appointed to a committee to draft a Declaration of Independence. All right, so the committee formed on June 11th. Yes. Okay. On June 12th through June 27th, still in 1776, Jefferson, at the request of the committee, drafted a declaration of which only a fragment still exists. Jefferson's clean copy, or as they called it, the fair copy, the original rough draft, was is reviewed by was reviewed by the committee. Both documents are in the manuscripts collections at the Library of Congress today. So they they still exist, but not in whole. Are they on display? I I don't think so. I wouldn't think so. They're I mean they're a big deal. You yeah. wouldn't want to. Well, I mean the whole Constitution is on display. Yeah, but it's especially like it's and the, super. The Declaration of the Constitution is still on display. Yeah, but I wouldn't think that the draft, the like the original rough draft would be... Probably not. I don't recall seeing it there so, in the archives. Yeah. On June 28th, the fair copy of the committee draft of the Declaration of Independence was read to Congress. On July 1st through 4th, Congress debated and revised the Declaration of Independence. July 2nd, Congress declared the independence as the British fleet and the army arrived at New York. On July 4th, Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence in the morning of a bright, sunny, but cool Philadelphia day, kind of like the weather we're having right now. Mm. John Dunlop prints the Declaration of Independence. These prints are now called the Dunlop Broadsides. 24 copies are known to exist two of which are in the Library of Congress, and one of these was Washington's personal copy. Okay, so I wonder, so on July 2nd, Congress actually declared independence, and on July 4th, um, that's when they officially adopted the, the declaration, declaration and the first draft, or the first, um, I don't mean drafts, but the first copies were printed. Right. So what, I wonder what was going on on July 3rd. Well, they were debating it. Because they, they had already, they declared independence on the 2nd, and then on the 4th, they Well, they were writing it. this thing by hand. 
Oh, that's Maybe. true. So yeah. it's probably okay. like a work day. Just it's to... a work day, yeah. <laughs> On uh, July 5th, John Hancock, president of the Continental Congress, dispatched the first of Dunlop's broadsides of the Declaration of Independence to the legislatures of New Jersey and Delaware. July 6th, Pennsylvania Evening Post printed the first newspaper rendition of the Declaration of Independence. On July 8th, the first public reading of the Declaration happened in Philadelphia. July 9th, Washington ordered that the Declaration of Independence be read before the American Army in New York. On July 19th, Congress ordered Congress orders, ordered the Declaration of Independence engrossed, which means officially inscribed and signed by members. So is that when July 19th is when we got the big old John Hancock? I guess. Scribble, scribble. On August 2nd, delegates begin to sign the engrossed copy of the Declaration of Independence and a large British reinforcement arrived in New York after being repelled at Charleston, South Carolina. On January 18th, 1777, Congress, now meeting in Baltimore, Maryland, ordered that the signed copies of the Declaration of Independence printed by Mary Catherine Goddard of Baltimore be sent to the different states. So, so I mean, there is... Yeah, it took it, a while. Yeah they, yeah, they just didn't sit there and write this up yeah, and say, it, here it, it is. Fast. Yeah. It was, I mean, honestly, from... The the beginning of working on the Declaration, June seven or June eleventh, seventeen seventy six, to I guess January. what we would say popular um, distribution, maybe uh, January eighteenth, seventeen seventy seven. So it was several, you know, six six yeah, months, six, five six, six months, five, something yeah. like that. Six seven months. All right, so let's get back to the war. Things were not going well for the Americans. After five back-to-back defeats for Washington's army at Long Island, Harlem Heights, White Plains, Fort Lee, and Fort Washington, the British captured New York City in the summer of 1776. And this is where we have to talk about Nathan Hale. One of the big stories that everyone always associates. He's famous for his quote, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country just before he was hanged. Hale had volunteered on September 8, 1776 to go behind enemy lines and report on British troop movements. It was an act of spying that was immediately punishable by death if he was caught and he obviously posed a great risk. So he was ferried across the East River to Huntington, New York on British-controlled Long Island on September 12th. Nathan Hale planned to disguise himself as a Dutch schoolteacher looking for work, but he didn't travel under an assumed name, and reportedly he carried his Yale diploma with him that had his real name on it. So while he was undercover, New York fell, New York City fell to British forces on September 15th, so this is three days after he went over, and Washington was forced to retreat to the islands north in Harlem Heights. And soon after that, on September 21st, so about a week later, A quarter of the lower portion of Manhattan was burned by the Great New York Fire of 1776. Now, that fire was later widely thought to have been started by the American saboteurs in order to keep the city from falling into British hands. But Washington had talked about setting fire to New York during the retreat, but he and Congress had rejected the idea, and so they denied responsibility for the fire after its outbreak. So we don't really know what happened with the fire of 1776 in New York. Yeah, we, we don't know who fired the shot heard around the world Yeah, either. there's a lot of stuff that, did he, did he not? So one account of 
um, Nathan Hale's capture, later obtained by the Library of Congress, was written by, and I love this name, Consider Tiffany. I love those old school names like Consider, Patience, Prudence. Um, Consider Tiffany (laughs) was a Connecticut shopkeeper and loyalist. So in Tiffany's account, Major Robert Rogers of the Queen's Rangers saw Hale in a tavern and recognized him despite his quote-unquote disguise. After luring Hale into betraying his allegiance by pretending to be a patriot himself, Rogers apprehended Hale near Flushing Bay in Queens, New York. But then another story is that Hale's cousin was a loyalist named Samuel Hale, and he was the one who revealed the true identity of Nathan Hale. Hmm. For, for, For Hale's sake... I hope that it that it wasn't his cousin. It wasn't his cousin. Like that's low to sell out your cousin. Anyway, British General William Howe had established his headquarters in the Beekman House in a then rural part of Manhattan, which there's no such thing anymore. Hale was reportedly questioned by Howe, and physical evidence was found on him. Now we don't know what that physical evidence exactly is. It could have been the Yale diploma. I don't know. Rogers provided information about the case, and according to tradition, Hale spent the night in a greenhouse at the mansion. He requested a Bible. His request was denied. Later, he requested a clergyman. Again, request denied. And according to the standards of the time, spies were hanged as illegal combatants. And so on the morning of September 22nd, 1776, Nathan Hale was marched along the post road to the Park of Artillery, which was next to a public house called the Dove Tavern, and hanged. Now, the Dove Tavern is at modern-day 66th Street and 3rd Avenue. If you are ever in New York and you want to go visit, that's where you can find it. At the time, Nathan Hale, again, young man, 21 years old. Pretty incredible. I mean, these guys had a lot of willpower and and drive and motivation to do what they did but um yeah so nathan hill patriot did his thing young patriot very young patriot so following this the uh, the british captured new york city and they they continued to fight and they drove washington's army across new jersey and they, they won several battles as they went along the way. They, they just kept pushing and pushing the Americans back. That winter, however, Washington kind of uh, caught up and uh, helped the American cause by winning a couple battles, particularly at Trenton and Princeton, New Jersey. Now, you've probably seen the painting of Washington, Washington crossing the Delaware. Probably didn't look like that. I mean, I'm, he wasn't standing up in the bow of the boat. <laughs> With his hand on his hip. No. Crossing. He was probably sitting down on the boat because he didn't want it to tip over. And, and he cold. didn't want to fall in the Delaware River. Uh, it was, so interestingly, the Delaware River where they crossed uh, was less than, uh, I think it was like 300 feet. Like it wasn't, it wasn't as big wide as what you would think. Oh, 300 yards. That's why. The Delaware River where, where Washington and his guys crossed, it was less than 300 yards wide. Um, it looks huge, but it wasn't. Uh, and flat ferries were used across. They probably were fixed to a wire strung across the river. But the the sucky thing was that, unlike what is kind of shown in the picture, um, you don't really get a sense of how ragged everybody was. Remember, they were not receiving British goods, so their clothes and everything were 
you know, I've heard stories of um, the the American soldiers eating their shoe leather, their boots for sustenance. Um, at the time when they crossed the river, uh, temperatures were ranging from about 29 to 33 degrees Fahrenheit. There was a massive storm that had blown up. So they were crossing this really cold river in the middle of a storm. So probably was not like what you see in the painting. No. And... Okay, so a river crossing operation in even modern military operations is a very difficult operation. You just don't like hop in a boat and go. It, it's it's complicated. So when you say only three hundred yards, that that's three football fields wide, and trying to cross a massive army. So they crossed. They they crossed. Started with fifty four hundred troops in boats. The river was that's icy. A lot of people. Yeah. And what they were hoping to do was surprise the Hessian force celebrating Christmas at their winter quarters in Trenton, across the river in New Jersey. The surprise attack came after several months of major defeats. You know, they've been getting pushed back out of New York and across New Jersey. And uh, remember, they had just lost New York City, so they were kind of down at the time. So to get to the river crossing, about 11 p.m. on Christmas, Washington's army started crossing the, the half-frozen river at three locations. So it's complicated. I mean, trying to yeah. coordinate all this stuff. 2,400 soldiers led by Washington successfully braved the icy and freezing river and reached the New Jersey side just before dawn. So it, it took from 11 till dawn. It's winter, so dawn would have been probably... 637, something yeah. like that. It took all night to move 2,400 people. Um, the other two divisions made up of some 3,000 men and crucial artillery didn't make it, and they, they just didn't make it across. They didn't make it to where they were supposed to be at the critical time. So at approximately 8, again, a, a river crossing operation is a very, very difficult thing to to coordinate. And you've and, done this stuff and, before. Yeah, and especially back in the day with no radios and oh, not yeah. having the communication and trying in to cross a three in the middle of the night. In the middle of a storm. Yeah, it's it, it's a pretty incredible feat. Oh, yeah. What, what they accomplished. But about 8 o'clock that morning, um, Washington, on December 26th, Washington's force that he had with him, they separated into two different columns and they reached the outskirts of Trenton and they, they snuck up on the unsuspecting Hessians. Uh, Trenton had about 1,400 Hessians defenders there. They were groggy from the previous evening's festivities. Now, groggy, I would say they were probably hungover. <laughs> but they underestimated the American threat after months of all the, the decisive battles that the British had been fighting. They probably had these Americans. They're nothing. It's Christmas Eve. Or it's Christmas. We're going to have our party. Let's have a good time here. And they just completely underestimated what uh, George Washington and his men could do. Um, the army, George Washington's army, quickly overwhelmed the German defenses. And by 9.30 a.m., the town had surrendered. It's so interesting if you compare this Christmas to Christmas in World War One with the... Uh the Germans and the British and the way that that kind of went versus the Germans and the Americans a couple hundred years earlier. It's just really interesting to um, these Christmas attacks and how they, they go. So in 1777, the British had launched two major offensives. 
Uh, in September, General William Howe captured Philadelphia, which was kind of, you know, I mean, former capital. Uh, and he won battles at Brandywine and Germantown. But even though they lost, the inexperienced soldiers of the Continental Army still performed really well. And they were, they were pretty sure of themselves. They thought they could very well stand up to the British. And then in October, British General John Bur- Burgoyne, Burgoyne, sure. Burgoyne, John yeah, Burgoyne. That's him. Uh, invaded upstate New York via Canada. He won several initial victories. However, later. Matt, do you know where this guy is? However, later his army became bogged down thanks in part to efforts of American militia units at Oriskany, Fort Stanwix, and Bennington. And then after a huge defeat in open battle, Burgoyne surrendered his entire field army at Saratoga, New York, which is why I don't know how to pronounce his name because he surrendered his entire field army and he lost. And no one remembers the losers. The American victory at Saratoga was a turning point of the war because it convinced the French monarchy that the Americans actually could defeat the British in battle. So as a result... And that's why this is really crucial and important because we needed the French. We needed some help. We were kind of hurting a little bit. As a result, a formal military alliance was signed between the French and American governments in 1778, which entailed increased financial and military support. And the alliance had even more positive implications for the Continental Army because it forced Parliament to funnel manpower and resources to fight the French across the globe rather than sending them to North America. Kind of reminds me of their army. It reminds me of the French and Indian War, which is what got everybody into trouble in the first place. You're spreading your army too thin. And then that same winter, a few months prior to the formal signing of the alliance, Washington's and the army camped at Valley Forge for the winter, and that's the one that was real bad. Yeah, this is when <laughs> it, it, it was the conditions were miserable. It was cold, and they were miserable here. So the six-month encampment of General George Washington's Continental Army at Valley Forge in the winter of 1777 and 78 was a major turning point in the American Revolutionary War. The conditions were notoriously cold and harsh, and the provisions were in way short supply. It was winter at the camp um, where Washington was, and he didn't waste his time at Valley Forge with the help of former Prussian military officer Friedrich Wilhelm Baron von Steuben. He is, we still read about in the American army about von Steuben. Really? Yeah, Steuben, Steuben, yeah. So Washington allied with von von Steuben, Steuben? Mm -hmm. How am I saying it? Normally I'm the name guy, but if you've studied this guy, all right. They transformed this battered Continental Army into a unified, world-class fighting force capable of beating the British. So General George and his weary troops arrived at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, six days before Christmas in 1777. The men were hungry and tired after a string of losing battles that had resulted in the British capture of Patriot Capital, Philadelphia, earlier in the fall. The defeats had led some members of the Continental Congress to want to replace Washington, believing he was incompetent. Now, the Valley Forge Winter Campsite was about 20 miles north of Philadelphia, so about a day's march from the British-occupied American capital. Most of the land had previously been cleared for agriculture, which left an open rolling landscape. And Washington picked the spot because it was close enough to keep an eye on the British troops sheltering in Philly, but it was far enough away to prevent a surprise attack on his own Continental Army. 
So Washington and his men would remain at the camp for about six months from December 1777 until June 1778. In 1778, the British consolidated their forces in New York and Canada, and they prepared to launch an invasion south down into, into America. In the meantime... In the West, American forces under George Rogers Clark captured several British outposts, and uh, it all ended with a victory at Vincennes, Indiana, and the surrender of a much larger British force. So, I mean, we think about the American Revolution just like in New England, yeah, but it, I didn't it was spread it was across far Ohio Indiana. and Indiana, yeah, huh. and down into Georgia, Savannah, and other places. To the north, the British abandoned Philadelphia for New York, and with Washington hot on their heels, uh, George Washington caught up to the Redcoats at Monmouth, New Jersey, where an intense battle took place. After arriving late to the battle and rallying and wavering his troops, Washington made several defenses and counterattacks against the oncoming British force. Um, Though they were inconclusive, there was no clear victor on the battlefield, but the battle demonstrated the growing effectiveness of the Continental Army. So, I mean, they were now, the British were saying, hey, this is a force to be reckoned with. Mm. Upon finally reaching New York, British forces never again ventured far from New York, and they stayed pretty much in their base there because... That's right, they did. They they, they had this pretty healthy respect for the Americans by this time. Mm-hmm. In 1779, with the fighting on a global scale and a stalemate developing in the north, the British began to focus their efforts on conquering the south in hopes of quelling the rebellion once and for all. So, I mean, it's it's happening New York, upstate New York. It's happening clear out to Indiana, and now they're they're starting to move down south to try to take care of this. That autumn, British forces captured Savannah and Charleston, and smashed General Gates' army in Camden, South Carolina, forcing Camden to surrender his army. However, the Continental Army won battles at Kings Mountain and Cowpens, stemming the tide of the British advance. Undeterred, the British army under General Charles Lord Cornwallis then moved across uh, North Carolina before fighting his way back into Virginia. So, I mean, it's spread out all along. And again, just try to think of the communication with Washington being the overall commander-in-chief yeah. of how they're trying to communicate and how to make all this stuff happen. It's it's pretty incredible how this stuff... I mean, they didn't War have time a... time back in the day was... They didn't even have telegraph to try to communicate or trains. Oh, yeah. It was pretty much people on horseback conveying letters. Now... Enter one of the most infamous people in history, traitor Benedict Arnold. We could do an entire episode on old Benny. Oh, we we absolutely could. I mean... We might one day. Trying Just trying to get this. It took a lot of editing and just to try to tone this down to where it is right now, just to try to paint the picture. There, He was a very interesting character. Maybe one day we'll do a... a we could. We could do an entire show, show on, on Benedict, Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold. So we're, I'm going to try and summarize it as briefly as possible. He was buddies with George Washington, uh, and Washington defended him on several occasions. But Benedict was a little bit of a hothead, and he didn't really play well with others. There were run-ins and disagreements with Ethan Allen and other American officers. He had a lot of squabbles with his underlings. 
And probably because of this unpopularity, he got blamed for a lot of stuff. It was him. He did it. Yeah. He saw people promoted before him with whom he had to serve. He had money issues. No one liked him. So, well, somebody liked him because he got married. But with people in Congress eyeing everything he did, he was soon brought up on charges and was court-martialed in June of 1779. He defended himself, furiously as always, but he was found guilty, shocker, on two charges, using government wagons for his personal use and issuing a pass to a ship he later invested in. Yeah, so he was, he he was kind of <laughs> crooked. Um, Washington pronounced the charges imprudent and improper and peculiarly, peculiarly reprehensible. So he's, he's, he's even losing favor right now. Of, no, he's losing favor of George Washington. Oh, now. I see what he's saying. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Benedict had already been bargaining with the British. Now his pride. Was, I mean, he saw, he saw the writing he, on the wall. He, the writings on the wall. He knew what was up. His pride was probably the biggest piece of his life that was damaged because humiliation was something that he could never take. It makes me wonder if he was short. I don't know. I, I feel like that might have been a thing. Money, of course, played a big part. He was offered in excess of 10,000 pounds and a commission in the British military. So for the 10,000 pounds, he offered up West Point to the British. And to make a long story short, the British took care of Benedict but never completely trusted him. So he was never given that important military command that he was promised. So he and his wife moved to London where he didn't find a job. He did find some admiration, but he also found some contempt. So he moved his family to Canada where he re-entered the shipping business. But the Tories there disliked him and they had no use for him. And so eventually he ended up going back to London. By then... Um, There was fighting between France and England, and he tried for military service, but he didn't have any luck. And so his shipping ventures eventually failed, and he died in 1801, virtually unknown. And then his wife died three years later, and he's now thought of as... That is Benedict Arnold in, what, minute, two minutes? If. If we... he, he is a really interesting character. There's a lot of stories I read that we could have put in here, but we only have an hour for this episode. And I want to... There's already yeah, tight. Yeah, we want to keep on track because we want to end up with... Uh, we will come back to Benedict Arnold another yeah, episode. Yeah, because he's... Really, he's a really interesting guy. I but don't know why everybody didn't like him. Well, I know why they didn't like him, but we're going to tell the story I mean, about what, the bad yeah, guy yeah, 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 here one yeah. day. Uh, let's get back to the war, though. <laughs> So while General Cornwallis fought his way into Virginia, a brutal civil war was erupting among the civilian population of the Carolinas. Uh, General Nathaniel Green recaptured most of South Carolina, fighting battles at um, 96 Hobart's Hill and Utah Springs. While Green lost most of the battles in which he fought, he skillfully used his mixed force of militia and continental regulars to maneuver the British out of the Carolinas and out of the Carolina interior, forcing them toward the coastal towns and the coastal cities. Now, if you've ever watched the movie The Patriot, this is where a lot of this stuff is taking place right Mm -hmm. now. So, I mean, historically accurate, pretty... There's a lot of personal tale in there, but the actual, the battles and that, I think, kind of depicts this... 
fairly well, but hmm. you know, you have to throw in the personal sure. stuff in there right yeah. there. It's a movie. Yeah, it's a movie. It's a good movie. I enjoyed it. By the summer of 1781, Virginia was in total war with battles along the colony's coast and across its center. General Marquis de Lafayette, French guy. <laughs> you don't say. No. He, he forced Cornwallis toward the coastal defenses around Yorktown, Virginia, and he, pers- uh, he persuaded Washington to move the Continental Army from Connecticut, Connecticut to Virginia. He, I mean, he was trying to bring this whole thing to a head and to a sure. conclusion. Yeah. Washington, along with a French fleet, and the army commanded by General Rochambeau. Rochambeau. Rochambeau, okay. <laughs> arrived in Virginia on September 19th, 1781, effectively sealing shut any escape route for Cornwallis. And again, if you go back to the movie, I just remember that scene, Cornwallis <laughs> sitting there looking at, and they were trying to urge him to keep fighting, and Cornwallis is like, no. We're done. It's over. It's done. And... Was that an accurate thing? I can picture that. Maybe yeah. it's, maybe it was only, but what's that, the Mandela effect? Yeah. Yeah, I, but that's how I picture that actually happening. I imagine he was pretty upset and pretty mad. I would have, I would say so. Yeah. Because now he's got to go answer to the king. Yeah, but the way they just portrayed it is like, nah. Yeah, it's fine. We're it's done. over. <laughs> We're done. We're done here. Time to go home. Yep. Following Yorktown, both sides consolidated their forces and waited while peace negotiations took place in Paris. On April 19th, Congress ratified the uh, preliminary peace treaty. Again, April 19th. Yeah. There, there were many small actions near New York City and western Pennsylvania and along the Carolina coast because, you know, I, I would imagine that was because word wasn't being yeah, spread. Yeah, it takes a minute. Yeah, it's, it's going to take a while. But the large-scale fighting really had ended by this time. At the time that the Treaty of Paris was signed in September 1783, September 1783. So when did all this start? Seven back in 1775. Before that, Eve, I mean, all of it started what in the 1770s, somewhere around in there. The, the war. Yeah, I'm talking about the Lexington. Shot, Con- shots fired was 1775. Yep. Yeah. So in September 1783. So almost Um, 10 years later. Yeah. That is a long time. The war ended in favor of the American colonists. So the fight for the American independence and freedom from the British, Mm. 10 long years. The British still controlled Savannah, Charleston, New York, and Canada. On uh, November 25th, British troops packed up and they left New York City. On December 23rd, Washington resigned as the commander and there you have the American Revolution in a nutshell. That was a pretty long nutshell. Yeah. Like I said, I hope we, we presented this in a better format than just sitting down and reading a history book of dates and this, this, and that. This, but, ha- this battle happened on this day. This battle happened on this day. There was a lot of fighting, a lot, lot of bloodshed on ten both years. sides. I mean, I think a lot of people think the, the revolution just, yeah, you know, I it know, was I like did. 1776, but... Ten yeah. years. I didn't realize that it had gone on so much longer after the Declaration of Independence was signed. Yeah, and and as of yet, next week we're going to cover the post-war and the peace, 
and we don't even have a constitution yet. Yeah, we're just this. So we've got independence. Now, now what? Now what do we do? We have this Continental Congress. We've got George Washington just quit as being the general. So we've got the British are borderline gone. Borderline anarchy. It's not anarchy, but in that's, the that's sense a little of strong. I not think. anarchy in the sense of like overthrow the government. Anarchy, but anarchy is in well, they like just overthrew. nobody's in charge. What do we do now? No, I think they were well in charge. The Continental Congress, but you didn't have any way of kind of. I mean, you have nothing on paper that delegates authority to anybody. It's all. I mean, it's not. We don't have the Constitution, so we don't have. Well, they any- don't have a Constitution, but they had stuff written down because they had they'd formed the colonies and they had delegates. But that's that what I'm came saying. Like to but, Philadelphia and to places. But we have a whole bunch of independent colonies and a bunch of independent cities that now we have to make a nation out of these independent cities, and we got to find somebody to lead it, and we got to find somebody to make up what's going to happen. We have to pull all this together. We just spent ten years fighting, and now let's start pulling all this together and now form a nation. And that's what next week's episode is going to be. And that is just as interesting as the war because politics are politics. And, (laughs) yeah, it's going to be, uh, it's out there. And a a lot of characters, a lot of stories. Shout out to Lin-Manuel Miranda and the Disney Channel who are releasing Hamilton on July 2nd. So, Hopefully, uh, I know uh, Lafayette is in it. So some of the, if you have Disney Plus and you watch Hamilton, um, you'll recognize some of these people. Yeah. Okay. So like we said, there is the American Revolution in approximately an hour. Ish. Ish. Yeah. So Kim, if people don't like our version of the revolution how do they get hold of us they don't if you don't like what we have to say then keep your opinions to yourself but if you do want to talk to us and say nice things uh or tell me how i'm wrong on some of the things that i said because i know i blundered a little bit or how i can't pronounce french names then you can write to us at a lost hour at gmail.com you can find us on Twitter at a lost hour, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at an hour of your life. And we would love to hear from you. And hopefully next week, the next episode, we will be on time. We will be on time and it should come from our new studio <gasps> that oh, we will be yes. able to set up. Yes, that's true. Yeah. All right. So we, we've been doing this in a temporary location. Yeah, we'll be and in our I think permanent the, studio next time. We'll be, yeah, we'll hopefully. be yeah, down the basement. But Woo. we'll have it all set up nice. Yeah. Maybe the uh, sound will sound a little bit better, a little bit different. I don't know because it'll be Open. some different acoustics down there. But we're excited. Yep. All right. So from the beautiful studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources this week include ushistory.org, history.com, and battlefields.org. Happy birthday, Steve! And Ralph Waldo Emerson. Him too.